1: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Uh, This afternoon, James Blend is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering. Today, we're going to talk with Kate Anderson. She's senior counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom. She's also a member of the Center for Conscience Initiatives. Uh, We're going to talk about a nonprofit homeless shelter in Anchorage, Alaska, challenging the city's effort to force Uh, Force Them to Allow Men in Their Overnight Shelter for Sexually Abused Women. We'll explain all the details when she joins us in the next hour. We'll also talk with Justin Wells. He is an author and a documentary filmmaker. His latest book is How to Film Truth, the Story of Documentary Film as a Spiritual Journey. And in addition to giving you something of an overview, a history of documentary film, uh, it also gives you, uh, it's an excellent guide to how to Uh, approach documentary films, what to look for. And if you are an aspiring filmmaker, whether that's just putting together something for your own community or something larger, uh, there's a great guide at the end with questions to help you formulate what kind of film and some of the details on that. So it's really quite a well-done and interesting, very small, compact, easy-to-read volume. He'll be joining us in the 5 o'clock hour. First, a look at some of the developing news stories from the day. The shutdown shenanigans continues. No work and all play for... Uh, Some, at least that's the perspective. Now, when uh, there is a meeting held by one party or the other, it's generally planned months in advance, so there's no... Um, there's no way to know ahead of time that there's going to be a government shutdown. So it's a bit unfair, and it, it's, it's been played on both sides. But with the longest government shutdown in U.S. history entering its fourth week, some 30 Democrats are under fire for traveling to Puerto Rico this weekend to meet with lobbyists and to see a special performance of Hamilton. Now, there are other things that have also taken place. And again, to suggest that this is unique to the Democrats on this occasion is probably not fair. But nonetheless, that's those are the facts as they stand. Uh, while the Democrats also plan to attend the the Congressional Hispanic Caucus Bold Pack gathering in San Juan and met with the Puerto Rican officials to discuss ongoing cleanup efforts from Hurricane Maria. Republicans were angered over images of their Democratic colleagues enjoying the island beaches. While the president is in D.C. working to resolve the government shutdown and secure our border, Democrats are hitting the beach and partying with lobbyists. That's a quote from RNC Chairman Ronna McDaniel in a tweet. While Democrats soaked in the sun while a new potential crisis was also on the horizon at the border, a new caravan was reportedly forming in Honduras with plans to head toward the United States. But there is no crisis. Congress is set to return on, uh, well, today, uh, for the first full week of work since the Democrats assumed control of the House, and neither President Trump nor Democratic lawmakers show signs of relenting in the battle over the border wall at the center of the partial government shutdown. However, the patience of the American people, not so much with regard to the border wall, but the government shutdown. Um, is growing a bit thinner. In an interview with the Fox News Sunday, Chris Wallace, Senator Lindsey Graham out of South Carolina, recommended that President Trump open the government for a period of time, perhaps three weeks, while resuming negotiations and trying to reach a deal with Democrats. If Democrats still refuse to compromise on a deal after three weeks, Graham said Trump should resort to emergency options to get funding for the border wall. Meanwhile, the effects are the, of rather the potential government shutdown uh, partial government shutdown are beginning to uh, manifest. The president uh, signed legislation this week authorizing back pay for 800,000 federal workers who either have been idled or are working without pay during the shutdown. He's expected to address the American Farm Bureau, which he did earlier today. Farmers have supported the president through the trade war with China, but some are complaining about the loss of loans, payments, and other agricultural services because of the shutdown. And Canadian air traffic controllers are buying pizzas for their American counterparts in Salt Lake, Utah, Anchorage, Alaska. Uh, As a show of support, some 10,000 air traffic controllers in the U.S. have been working without pay since December the 22nd. A terminal in Miami International Airport is set to reopen today after being closed at times over the weekend due to shutdown-induced staff shortages. Transportation Secretary Administration agents have been calling out sick uh, to protest not being paid for their work. And murder suspect, uh, kidnapping and murder suspect uh, was charged today. The suspect in the kidnapping of a Wisconsin teenager and the killing of her parents is scheduled to formally face charges in his first court appearance. Jake Thomas Patterson, 21, uh, made his initial appearance in Barron County Circuit Court where prosecutors uh, formally charged him with two counts of intentional homicide and one count of kidnapping. Investigators believe he broke into James and Denise Kloss' home near uh, Barron, on the fifteenth of October, blowing the front door open with a shotgun blast, they say he then gunned the couple down, abducted their thirteen-year-old daughter, whom he had seen uh, walking onto a bus, and decided he was going to take her. Patterson alleged uh, allegedly held Cross uh, uh, captive for nearly three months until she escaped and was spotted by on the street, leading to his arrest. This was by a neighbor. Cross's aunt said that the uh, Pattersons had absolutely no contact with the family before the slayings. Court documents uh, today. Uh, could shed some light on his alleged motives um, beyond the fact that he had seen her and wanted her at this point is all that we know. Two longtime foes of the president, Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos and potential 2020 challenger Senator Elizabeth Warren, felt his wrath on Twitter Sunday night. The president coined a new nickname for the Amazon founder Jeff Bozo and praised the far more accurate National Enquirer reporting, That revealed Bezos' alleged affair at the uh, expense of Bezos' own outlet, the Washington Post. Uh, Bezos announced his divorce from his wife last Wednesday, and news of the billionaire's relationship with a former television anchor broke soon after. The president also mocked Elizabeth Warren over her New Year's Eve Instagram live stream Sunday night, saying that the video would have been a smash if it had been done from Bighorn or Wounded Knee instead of her kitchen. Now, boys and girls, I just want to say this is not the kind of conduct I would recommend you engage in, especially if you want to grow up someday and become president. Oh, never mind. William Barr, President Trump's uh, pick to be the next U.S. Attorney General, is expected to be grilled this week during his Senate confirmation hearing before a sharply divided Senate Judiciary Committee. The committee has a new chairman, Senator Lindsey Graham, and Barr on Tuesday will be facing several Democrats who may have 2020 presidential campaign ambitions, including Senator Cory Bookie, Booker, rather, who actually does in New Jersey. Kamala Harris of California, who does. And Amy... Uh, klobuchar of minnesota Barr was attorney general under president herbert walker bush He is expected to face questions about his record his relationship with trump and his goals for the justice department and his views on special counsel robert Mueller's russia investigation and on this day in 1970 diana ross and the supremes performed their last concert together at the frontier hotel in las vegas On this day in 1963, George C. Wallace is sworn in, in rather, as governor of Alabama with the pledge, segregation forever, a view he would later repudiate. And on this day in 1784, United States uh, ratifies the Treaty of Paris, ending the Revolutionary War. Britain would follow suit in April of 1784. Well as I mentioned today we'll talk with Kate Anderson, Senior Counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom Freedom about a challenge in Anchorage, Alaska for a shelter for women who have been battered and are homeless. We'll tell you more about that. And Justin Wells will join us. He's a filmmaker and author of How to Film Truth, the story of documentary film as a spiritual journey.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: You're listening to the Monday edition of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the government remains shut down. It's now entered its 23rd day. Government workers are not getting paid and nobody cares. Well, I think some people. What was that? 24th day. The 24th day. You're right. It is the 24th day. Thank you, Clark, as he's waving his hands frantically in the interest of truth. Appreciate it. Anyway, this whole episode was brought on because uh of... Two sides are unwilling to come to the middle and make some kind of a conclusion. The president asked for $5 billion for parts of the border wall. He reportedly offered to reopen the government. If he received half of that in his meeting with Democrats earlier this week, they rejected it outright, had no counteroffer. Democrats uh, gained 40 seats in the House. So they have more they're, uh, from a position of strength than the majority. And, um, um, Nancy Pelosi is speaker again. They have um, very little incentive to play ball with the presidents uh, and the, the Trump administration. They were elected to stop him and stop him. They will. But we're in day 24 of this uh, shutdown and essentially nobody wins until finally there is uh, a resolution. An interesting piece written by Arnold Allert, who writes, Hollywood now makes movie money from international box office revenues than domestic ones or more. Uh, Google shelved its Dragonfly project to build a censored search engine for communist China, but CEO um, Sandar Pichai, he refused to rule out in implementing it in the future. Over the last 30 plus years, the income gap in America has reached unconscionable levels, especially over the last decade, and 26% uh 2016, 52% of British voters opted to leave the EU. That vote is on the verge of being negated by a series of uh, duplicitous negotiations. Meanwhile, Germany and France will sign a, um, a twinning pact uh, aimed at sharing defense, foreign and economic policy, viewed as a prototype for a more sovereign, united Europe. The headline simply read, anti-wall equals pro-globalism. What does any or all of this have to do with building a wall on our southern border? He writes everything. For as long as Americans can remember, the political divide in this nation has been termed left versus right, conservative versus liberal or Republican versus Democrat. For at least a decade, those terms have been little more than orchestrated distractions aimed at obscuring the real and most debilitating divide that has ever afflicted the nation. Globalism versus nationalism. In 2016, the globalist agenda was suddenly and shockingly rejected by the American electorate who had been uh, accused of ascension Um, of Hillary Clinton was a uh, done deal and that the fundamental transformation envisioned by Barack Obama and supported by media, academics... Hollywood, Wall Street, corporate America, Democrats, establishment Republicans and the legions of useful idiots convinced this country is uh, irredeemably flawed would continue unabated. A wall is both a symbolic and substantive rejection of the globalist open border national sovereignty despising agenda aided by this uh, media, uh, the corrupt media lackey who do the bidding of the uh, multinational corporations that employ them. Globalists insist a wall is ineffective, yet politicians have them around their homes. The Vatican is surrounded by a wall, and Israel built one to keep terrorists at bay. Moreover, the number of countries who have constructed or are constructing border barriers has increased from 16 in 1989 to 65 today. Globalist arguments against building a wall? It's immoral. Note that this bankrupt assertion is made by the same people who make the same uh, morally bankrupt assertion of all. Illegal aliens commit crimes at lesser rates than Native Americans, referring to... Americans who are native to the country now. In the last two years alone, ICE arrested 266,000 illegal aliens with criminal records that included 100,000 violent assaults, 4,000 murders, 30,000 sex crimes. In 2016, more Americans died from drug overdoses than the total number of deaths recorded in Vietnam over the course of 20 years. Drugs that include heroin smuggled from Mexico and fentanyl, marked um, Manufactured in China, uh, Chinese labs rather, and smuggled through Mexico and Canada. Those would. Uh countenance any number of such wholly avoidable crimes because it serves their ideological agenda are utterly despicable. It's too expensive. Illegal immigration costs Americans more, $100 billion per year. Reduce that by one uh, by only 10% and the wall pays for itself in two and a half years. Greater reductions equal quicker payback. It's uh, racist as is, um, as is anything that doesn't align with globalist dogma. If you must make a wall, some or all illegals should get a pathway to city. Citizenship. In 1986, America granted um, unambiguous amnesty to 2.7 million uh, people in the country illegally in exchange for a secure border and a crackdown on businesses who hired illegals. The border wasn't secured. Businesses still hired illegals. And after 30 more years of border busting, 11 to 22 million illegals live here again. Globalists who have, uh, have you believe this time will be different. It won't. And once again, America will signal the world that coming here is worth the risk. Moreover, the idea that national security should be used as a bargaining chip for anything else is absurd. High tech surveillance makes the wall unnecessary. Among the arguments, high tech um, percept uh, rather perpetuates more arrests of illegals well-rehearsed by immigrant lawyers on the other side of the border to exploit our nation's catch-and-release policy that transmits the exact same risk-reward message. A wall would partially undermine that uh, contemptible policy. Open border supporters uh, deflect this reality by insisting more people um, outstay their visa. That's true, so why not address both problems? Congrats, or rather Congress... Could make illegally crossing the border or overstaying one's visa a felony that also makes one automatically ineligible for asylum. They could fully institute the e-verify system and make it a felony to hire illegal workers. Congress could also write a law holding government officials who support sanctuary cities criminally and civilly liable for crimes committed by illegals they harbor. A clear violation of a 2014 Supreme Court ruling reiterating that immigration laws are regulated by the federal government. That they um, that they've. Uh, done none of these reveals the blatantly how blatantly rather our lawmakers have capitulated to globalist agenda. Well, he goes on from there, but it's an interesting um, look at some of the objections that are being made as not just one political party against another, but a much broader view of uh, globalism versus nationalism. Well, the latest proof um, uh, dishonestly and corruption are endemic at the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Latest proof comes from the New York Times. It's a report that the FBI initiated an investigation in May of 2017 into whether President Donald Trump was serving as a covert Russian agent. The accusation itself was ludicrous on its face, but from the legal standpoint, the FBI probe constituted an egregious abuse of power. The bureau had no probable cause, no evidence, and no reasonable suspicions. They investigated Trump because they could. They defied the law, ignored or perverted facts, and debased the integrity of the heretofore respected law enforcement agency, and this in the New York Times. Why did these rogue officials commit such an outrageous act of malfeasance, in a word, vengeance? Already incensed that Trump had defeated their preferred candidate, Hillary Clinton. They grew furious when the president fired Director James Comey on the uh, 9th of May in 2017. In reaction, they sought retribution. What better way of revenge or to revenge, uh, Comey's firing, than to launch a counterintelligence investigation of uh, Trump under the false uh, pretense that the committed treasonous acts for the benefit of the Kremlin and at the direction of President Vladimir Putin. Absent credible proof, information could be manuf- uh, manipulated to frame Trump while a complaint, uh, compliant media would gobble up the leaks and reports of damage uh, and so on. Well, the election results could then be undone when the president was driven from office. So that's a scenario many are still clinging to. But what is the F- what is the New York Times writing about in terms of the, of the FBI and its malfeasance? Well, we will leave it at that at this point. Um, and we all wait with bated breath, although I have no idea what bated breath is, uh, to see what Robert Mueller actually presents by way of evidence, whether or not there was sufficient grounds for the FBI to go around usual means to conduct this investigation. At this point, the speculation has gone on too long, and it's uh, we can only hope that the information and the resolution is coming soon. Well, what are the most likely Trump impeachment scenarios? Um, in reverse order of likelihood, five of these uh, possible impeachment-related scenarios that could play out between now and 2020, for those who hope uh, desperately hope that this will be the case. Now, impeachment, keep in mind, does not always mean removal from office. But one scenario the House votes to impeach uh, Donald Trump and he is removed from office by the Senate. You've got to be kidding, right? Because uh, you've got uh, Republicans in the majority in the Senate. So it's not likely. But again, this is the least likely to the most likely. Uh, The 111 University of Connecticut Huskies um, have a a better chance of beating Clemson in next year's college football national championship than Trump has of being removed from office by his own party in the Senate. So that's not likely. Another scenario, the House votes to impeach Trump, but he's not convicted and removed from office by the Senate. Uh, This is unlikely, not because uh, McConnell and company would give their uh, wouldn't likely give him. Um, that kind of a response, but because um, it's almost impossible to imagine Nancy Pelosi putting her party through something like that. The grassroots would love it. It would raise hundreds of millions, possibly billions of dollars. But Democrats can do all of those things anyway by flirting with the possibility of impeachment without actually having to go through it. Scenario number three, the House votes to impeach Trump, but the Senate does not hold uh, trial. Um, A lot of people think this is actually possible. It's not totally unprecedented. For the Senate to refuse to vote on the House's impeachment, but it has also not happened since the 18th century when the upper chamber concluded that William Blount, himself a senator, was not an officer of the federal government. Impeachment proceedings themselves are rare, however, and there is uh, no reason to think that there could not be uh, more anomalies uh, to be teased out in that process. Another scenario, the House doesn't move to impeach Donald Trump. Now, this seems less likely, although it's scenario number four. Uh, this scenario assumes that Pelosi is able to keep her people totally muzzled given the current breakdown with the House Democratic caucus between cynical careerists, uh, neoliberals, and doe-eyed freshmen progressives. This doesn't seem uh, totally impossible, uh, doesn't also seem likely. If you're a newly elected Democrat, uh, why risk the Speaker's ire over something doomed to fail anyway? Save uh, her goodwill for some quixotic green jobs bill that the Senate will also defeat instead. Uh, besides, the endless Russia hearings are probably going to be enough Uh, To tide the base over until 2020. And scenario number five, and again, this is the most likely scenario the House holds one or more votes to impeach the president that fails. This has, in fact, already happened. In December of 2017, Representative Al Green introduced articles of impeachment that named, among other high crimes and misdemeanors, one of the president's tweets about football players and his description of a political opponent as wacky. It failed overwhelmingly. Pelosi will do her best to keep her caucus from embarrassing themselves. But the likelihood that a November 2020 uh, that as it rolls around, without another failed impeachment vote, seems low. This is the safest bet of all. Now, keep in mind, this is all in the context of uh, yet to hear from um, the Mueller investigation, which could change everything. Now, some are suggesting that it could be very disappointing what's actually in the report. But again, that's as much speculative as the report is going to be a blockbuster, and the House of Cards was thought to uh, will start to fall. So we'll just have to wait and see when the Mueller report is completed. And what happens next? I just hope it's based on truth and that whatever happens next is the right thing to do based on what that investigation, assuming it was fairly applied. Reveals 30 minutes after four o'clock. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: 35 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Kate Anderson, senior counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom, a member of the Center for Conscience Initiatives regarding a nonprofit homeless shelter in Anchorage, Alaska, that's challenging the city's. Um, uh, g- well, what's the word? Anyway, the city's attempt to force. Uh, uh, or them to allow men into overnight shelters for sexually abused women who are also homeless. We'll also talk with Justin Wells, author of How to Film Truth, the Story of Documentary Film as a Spiritual Journey. He's a uh, working in the film industry. He is an author and a documentary filmmaker. He'll join us uh, later in the 5 o'clock hour as well. Well, dozens of conservative organizations are receiving a late Christmas present years after the IRS handed them a lump of coal. The federal government in recent days has been issuing Settlement checks to 100 right-to-center groups wrongfully targeted for their political beliefs under the Obama administration's Internal Revenue Service, according to an attorney for the firm that represented plaintiffs in NorCal versus United States. Three of the claimants in the $3.5 million national class action suit are based in Badger State. This is really a groundbreaking case. Hopefully it sets a precedent and will serve as a warning to government officials who further feel tempted to discriminate against U.S. citizens based on their viewpoint. Uh, That's a quote from Edward Grime, attorney for Kansas City, Missouri-based Graves Garrett LLC, uh, speaking to media. Well, most of the claimants will each receive a check of approximately $14,000, Grime said. Five conservative groups that were uh, integrally involved in the lawsuit get a bonus payment of $10,000 each. About $2 million of the settlement goes to cover the legal costs of five long years of litigation. IRS attorneys attempted to delay that after uh, delay, objection after objection, trying to use the very taxpayer protection statutes. The plaintiffs were suing under to suppress documents. Well, the the agency has admitted no wrongdoing in what the federal report found to the incidents of intrusive inspections and of organizations seeking nonprofit status. Grime uh, has said the seven-figure settlement, uh, suggests otherwise. An IRS spokesman declined to comment. Uh, the managing director of Wisconsin Small Businesses United, one of the groups receiving a settlement check, said the IRS conduct had a chilling effect on free speech. Shame on those people at the IRS who engaged in putting their foot down on the throats of people who were simply trying to advocate for all. Uh, for an issue, rather, or express an opinion. That uh, stain on the IRS should remain there as a reminder that this should never take place again. Well, of course, those who work for the agency did not pay the bill. Taxpayers did. Well, Consumer Rights Wisconsin is the other conservative organization receiving a settlement check, according to Grime. Disgraced former bureaucrat Lois Lerner led the IRS uh, a division that processed applications or failed to process applications for tax-exempt groups. In 2013, Inspector General's report found the IRS had singled out conservative and Tea Party organizations for intense scrutiny, oftentimes simply based on their conservative-sounding or Tea Party names. The IRS delayed for months, even years, the applications. And some groups were improperly questioned about their donors and their religious affiliations and practices. Lerner claims she did nothing wrong. It clear, it uh, in clearing her of wrongdoing and. Obama administration Department of Justice review described Lerner as a hero. But she invoked her Fifth Amendment right in refusing to answer questions before a congressional committee. The plaintiffs in the class action suit took the first and only deposition of Lerner, a document that the former IRS official and her attorney have fought to keep sealed. At one level, it's hard to even assess a dollar amount to what they did. It's uh, so contrary to what we think our bureaucrats in Washington should be doing. It boggles the mind, Grime went on to say in signaling um, Uh, The end um, on the agreement in August, federal judge um, Mitchell Barrett said the settlement was fair, reasonable and adequate. Rhyme said the money recovered in the settlement approximates the number of IRS violations involved. That's about what the evidence showed the attorney said. We felt like we got about everything we could. Originally, the class action included about 400 potential claimants. Conservative activists uh, are skeptical of the IRS public apologies and its pledge to end such targeting practices. The message is um, uh, do not let up on the gas pedal, do not be intimidated. The story uh, was updated recently because the checks have recently gone out. Well, the Supreme Court's justices returned to the court's first oral arguments in 2019, the last week without America's favorite octogenarian, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Seasoned litigators and Ginsburg's fanatic, uh, like fanatic rather alike, um, were shocked by Chief Justice John Roberts' announcement on Monday that she would miss oral arguments. The announcement came less than three weeks after the court issued a statement regarding her having a procedure to remove from her lung a cancerous nodule. Well, court spokeswoman Kathy Arberg, she issued a statement on Friday indicating Ginsburg recovery is on track and that post-surgery evaluation indicates no evidence of remaining disease and no further treatment is required. News outlets were reporting that Ginsburg will be absent from oral arguments this week as well. Those headlines have caused a flurry of speculation from fan and foe alike. But it's important to put that absence into context. Of the Supreme Court historically. It's common for justices to recuse themselves from practicing in cases for a variety of reasons, although she did not recuse herself. For example, um, they might have a financial stake in the litigation. Indeed, Justice Samuel Alito just recused, rather, unrecused himself from a case after selling off stock in one of the parties. Uh, they could have previously participated in the case as a litigant, for example. Justice Elena Kagan's previous post as Solicitor General of the United States under President Obama led her to uh, recusal. In a number of cases uh, in her first few years on the bench, uh, they also have uh, ruled on the case as a lower court judge, as uh, we 've seen with newcomers Justice Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh in all these instances, recusal is expected in the instance of in the interest of justice and fairness. Well, Ginsburg is not recused, however, from the cases uh, argued this week uh, this last week and Uh, This she'll still participate, just not in person. Justice Roberts explained on Monday that she will review the briefs and the transcripts of oral arguments before casting her vote. And while a justice's absence is not ideal, the court faced a much more dire situation when then Chief Justice William Rehnquist missed 44 oral arguments throughout 2004-2005 term while he underwent thyroid cancer treatments. To put this in perspective, the court typically hears between 65 and 75 cases per term. During his absence, Rehnquist reviewed the briefs and transcripts, and he went on to write the majority opinion in four of those cases. On top of that, the chief justice has a number of uh, of duties dealing with the administration of the federal judiciary that an associate justice like uh, Ginsburg does not. To be sure, a nine member court is preferable, but the court managed with eight members for nearly fourteen months after Justice Antonin Scalia suddenly passed. In February of 2016, the main impact was that the court tended to shy away from taking up any new cases, raising particularly contentious issues. And of course, the vacancy had a bit of an effect on the 2016 presidential election. But of the cases resolved by the eight member court, only a handful of decisions ended up a a 4-4 tie. Going further back in Supreme Court history, Justice Robert Jackson took a year long leave of absence to serve as the chief prosecutor in the Nuremberg. Uh, Trials in 45 and 46. This is all to say that absences are not unprecedented for members of the Supreme Court. They are extremely unusual for Ginsburg, however. Last week marks the first time in her 25-year tenure on the Supreme Court that she missed an oral argument, including when she previously battled cancer in 99 and 2009 when her beloved husband Marty died in 2010. It's also important to note that while oral arguments uh, receive a lot of attention from the media, they're a small part of the long life of a Supreme Court case. Um, The justices review briefs prepared by the litigants, friends of the court briefs filed by other interested parties, lower court opinions, relevant past Supreme Court opinions, and ultimately their decisions are based on much more than an hour of oral arguments. That's one reason Justice Clarence Thomas has cited Uh, for why he does not typically ask questions during oral arguments. Indeed, he suggested he would eliminate oral arguments if he could. Well, few would go that far, but Ginsburg's absence from the oral arguments isn't devastating to the integrity of the court by any means, nor is it a precedent. Even so, Ginsburg's absence draws uh, great speculation, whispers that the Trump administration is actively vetting candidates for her position On the court are heard all around Washington, which is still recovering from the bruising Kavanaugh confirmation. The administration is perhaps better prepared to nominate another Supreme Court justice should a vacancy arise than a typical administration. That's because the president already seriously considered several candidates for the past two vacancies, including Seventh Circuit Judge Amy Coney Barrett, Third Circuit Judge Thomas Hardiman And there are plenty of other options on his highly publicized Supreme Court shortlist. At this point, however, we shouldn't uh, read too much into Ginsburg's absence and instead just wish her a speedy recovery. And uh, again, she's 85. That certainly plays a role in uh, recovery and uh, competence. She said she will stay on the court as long as she is able to uh, uh, continue to work with vigor. We'll see whether or not that will be the case. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break, and we'll be back.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: 49 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our 5 o'clock, we'll talk with Kate Anderson about a case pending in Anchorage, Alaska, a homeless shelter for abused and homeless women. We'll also talk with Justin Wells, author of How to Film Truth, the story of documentary film as a spiritual journey he will be joining us in the 5 o'clock hour as well. Well, the Trump administration said that the IRS will send out tax refunds despite the partial government shutdown. Taxes, everyone's favorite subject. There's been a lot of buzz about the new tax reform bill this year. Change is always hard, and taxes, well, they're even harder. And with all the changes taking place this year, the thought of filing your taxes can feel a bit overwhelming at best. And while most of these changes should simply simplify the process, a lot of people are wondering how this reform is going to impact them and their banks. So what are some of the changes you can anticipate as tax season is upon us? Well, the new tax brackets and income tax rates, are one of the most talked about changes when it comes to the tax reform. The main thing you should know is that the seven tax brackets we already have in place will stay that way, but tax rates for each are going down through 2025. For example, if you're single making $50,000 a year, your tax rate will drop from 25% to 22%. In 2026, these cuts will expire unless there is another bill in the future that changes. Uh, For now, people are paying less in taxes. Then there's the new standard deduction. It's a a dollar amount that you're able to deduct from your taxable income. Under the new reform, the standard deduction has nearly doubled. Before the reform, the standard deduction for an individual was $6,000. $350. $350. Now it's $12,000. For a married couple, it um, used to be $12,700, and that's gone up to 24000 So if you're single and would normally do an itemized deduction, if it equals less than $12,000, you would take the standard deduction instead. Married couples, there's a change there, uh, will rejoice this tax season. Uh, before the tax reform, some married taxpayers were bumped into a higher tax bracket when they combined their incomes. The new tax brackets... Uh, have doubled for people filing jointly so no one marriage penalties this time no more of them anyway well people with uh, with kids there's the updated child's tax credit will be happy with at least one part of the new tax reform previously parents who made less than $110,000 jointly and $75,000 individually received a $1,000 tax credit for qualified children under the age of 17 now that credit has increased to $2,000, and the income limits were raised to $400,000 jointly, $200,000 individually. If you have kids and fall below those income levels, that's $2,000 back in your pocket. And now there's more reason to give. If there wasn't enough incentive for charitable giving before, there is now. Before these changes, taxpayers used to be able to deduct up to half of their income in qualified charitable donations. That limit has been increased to 60% of your income. These are just a few of the changes from the reform. If you um, are overwhelmed, don't worry. Even the IRS is pretty much scrambling to keep up with the changes uh, from uh, this year from last. If there ever was a time to consider hiring a professional to do your taxes, this might be the time to do it. You don't want to uh, guess and get it wrong. But those are some of the changes, the, the larger, more obvious changes you can anticipate this time around. Well, the 2020 presidential um, race has already begun, at least in terms of announcements being made, surrounded by supporters. Former Housing and Urban Development Secretary Julian Castro announced his run for presidency on Saturday, becoming the third major um, declared Democratic candidate for 2020. There will be many of them, we understand, perhaps reflecting what we saw with the Republicans last time around. We're going to make sure the promise of America is available to everyone in the 21st century, he told the crowd. Well, the Stanford University and Harvard Law School graduate made the announcement in his hometown where he served as mayor from 2009 to 2014. His term ended when former President Barack Obama tapped him to become HUD HUD secretary. Still, Castro touted his experience in the country's seventh largest city as a testament to his leadership abilities and why he should uh, make history as the country's first Latino president. He outlined climate change, universal health care as some of his main uh, priorities. I'm running for president because it's time for new leadership and to make sure opportunities I had are available to every American, he said. Well, Castro, who made stops in Iowa and Las Vegas days before his announcement, now joins what could be a crowded Democratic field. Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts launched an exploratory committee in December. Former Vice President Joe Biden, California Senator uh, Kamala Harris and former El Paso Congressman Beto O'Rourke whose um, profile has increased after narrowly losing to Senator Ted Cruz in November. But I'm certain he's looking uh, much better since we've now seen his dental appointment. Representative John Delaney of Maryland is already running for president. And Hawaii Representative Tulsi Gabbard said in an interview on Friday that she has decided to run for the White House as well. Well, if he wins, Mr. Castro would not only be the first Latino president at only 44 years old, he would be one of the youngest Americans to hold that seat. However, critics say the long list of hopefuls could easily outshine the Texas native. People here in San Antonio know him, obviously, but if you're uh, if you get out of Texas and you ask an ordinary citizen on the street and you say Julian Castro, they'll probably say Who? That's a member of the Republican club at Baxter um, County, rather Bexar County. Julian Castro has made history by becoming one of the biggest lightweights to ever run for president. Republican National Committee spokesman Michael Ahrens said in a statement he was a weak mayor who couldn't even handle being HUD secretary. This is obviously just another desperate attempt to become someone else's running mate. Well, we'll see what actually happens. But the uh, field um, and again, those are from Republican detractors. So no big surprise there. But the field of Democrats who are going to seek their party's nomination is growing. And now is about the time when those announcements begin and will continue over the next several, over the next many, many months. Well, newly elected Senator Marsha Blackburn announced uh, on Thursday that she's introduced her first bill in the Senate, one that would end federal funding to all abortion providers, including Planned Parenthood. Tennesseans and the American people do not want their taxpayers A dollar's going to abortion, she said in a statement posted on her Twitter account on Friday. The 66-year-old was elected to the Senate on November 6th, beating Democrat Phil Bredson, a former governor. She had previously represented Tennessee in the U.S. House since 2003 and before that served in the state Senate. They have made this position clear time and again, Blackburn, Tennessee's first female U.S. senator, said of state voters, hardworking taxpayers do not want to subsidize the business of abortion providers and entities such as Planned Parenthood, end quote. Well, the bill would ensure that abortion providers would not get funding under Title 10 of the Public Health Service Act which gives the uh, Secretary of Health and Human Services the authority to award grants for projects to provide family planning services to any person desiring such services with priority given to individuals from low-income families. Other pro-life organizations have tweeted support since Blackburn's announcement went live on Thursday. We're grateful for Senator Marshall uh, Marcia Blackburn, whose first bill as a U.S. senator will protect unborn babies by ensuring no one dime of taxpayer dollars under the Title X Family Planning Program goes to abortion business like Planned Parenthood, Susan B. Anthony List, a grassroots pro-life policy and advocacy organization, tweeted on Friday. And the deadline for ratifying the Equal Rights Amendment passed back in 1982, but that um, hasn't deterred its latest crop of activists. Down in Virginia, the tag team of liberal extremists and feminists are joining forces to bring the famous piece of 70s propaganda back from the grave. And this time, they're making it quite clear that the campaign has more to do with abortion than anything else. At a Richmond press conference of pro-life women Thursday, groups like Family Research Council Susan B. Anthony List called on Virginia leaders to reject the proposal. It's a waste of time, they argued, in a century where women are already protected as equal in our legislation and the courts. But then, as most Virginians um, uh, on the left will tell you, this was never really about equality. When my rights as a woman are dependent on laws because laws can change as quickly as legislatures can, uh, legislators can change their minds, the Supreme Court decision that allowed me to go to college can always be reversed. But when you enshrine my constitutional rights as a human being equal to men, well, that is the only thing that is acceptable because amendments do not expire. Prince William Democrat Jennifer Carol Foy in the Virginia Assembly for, floor, rather. And what rights are those? So Family Research Council's Director of Life, Culture, and Women's Advocacy thinks it's obvious. Women are continually used as props to push an agenda. The ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment, is not about women. It's really a smokescreen for abortion, she says. Well, Tina Whittenton, Executive President of Students for Life, Agreed. The only reason to pick the ERA off the dusty floor of history is because of a fierce desire to protect abortion at all costs. Well, Equal Rights Amendment Coalition co-president Jessica Newworth fired back that the amendment is silent on abortion, but that's by design. The reality, Susan B. Anthony lists Mallory Quigley says, is that the Equal Rights Amendment would alter the Constitution to create a permanent right to abortion on demand until the moment of birth paid for by you and me, the American taxpayer. It's even more extreme than Roe v. Wade, which in a single day struck down every pro-life law nationwide, end quote. And although Family Research Council legal expert Alexandra McPhee insists that ratifying the Equal Rights Amendment is a moot point, enough Virginia legislators um, sided with the proposal to send it out to, of committee by a close vote of 8 to 6. Whether the measure has enough steam to make it through the full assembly is another story, one that Virginians can play a part in. Well, California's PG&E is reeling from the wildfire fallout, announcing it will file for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. It is the nation's largest utility, and today it's filing for Chapter 11 because it faces at least $30 billion in potential damages from lawsuits over the catastrophic wildfires in California in 2017 and again in 2018 that killed scores of people and destroyed thousands of homes. The announcement comes just one day after the power company's CEO stepped down. In a statement, PG&E said it does not expect the bankruptcy process to impact its customers or employees. PG&E expects that the Chapter 11 process will, among other things, support the orderly, fair, and expeditious resolution of its potential liabilities resulting from the Northern California wildfires, the company said, and will assure the company has access to the capital and resources it needs to continue to provide safe services to customers. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. When we return, we'll talk with Kate Anderson, Senior Counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom, a member of the Center for Conscience Initiatives. We'll talk about what's happening in Anchorage with a women's shelter. And Justin Wells, uh, author and filmmaker, his latest book, "How to Film Truth: The Story of Documentary Film as a Spiritual Journey."
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. is aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, there is a case pending in Anchorage, Alaska. It involves the Downtown Hope Center. Uh, In fact, they uh, minister to women who are homeless and have been the victims of abuse. And they uh, chose not to allow an inebriated uh, male into the facility, but rather paid for his transportation to a local hospital where he was cared for. But a complaint followed. And now there's a case pending. Well, here to explain all the details for us is Kate Anderson. She's senior counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom. She's also a member of the Center for Conscious Initiatives. Thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Thanks for having me.
2: Well, this is an interesting case. And for many of us, it's the first that we've heard about it. There was a hearing on Friday having to do with an injunction. But maybe you can bring us to the beginning of this case, which seems altogether reasonable to me that the the shelter... Um, responded in a way that was compassionate and uh, in the best interest of everyone involved. But take us from the beginning.
3: Yeah, well, what's at issue in this case is the ability of homeless shelters to do the good work that they do without being afraid that the government is going to make them violate their beliefs. Uh, The HOPE Center is a religious nonprofit in Anchorage, uh, and as you said, they serve a particular population of women in their shelter, women who have been abused, uh, victims of domestic violence, of sex trafficking, and so they provide a safe haven for those women to come in at night and be out of the cold. Um, In January last year, an individual came into the shelter or came to the shelter. uh, It was a man who identifies as a woman, and he was both inebriated and obviously injured with a cut over his eye. Uh, So the director spoke with him and sent him to the hospital to get the care that she believed he needed. She even paid for his taxi to get there. Um, But following that, there was a complaint. And now Anchorage is coming after the Hope Center, telling them, um, one, that they discriminated against this individual uh, because they got him the care that he needed. um, And two, that going forward, they would have to allow biological men to come into the shelter and sleep three to five feet away from these women who have been abused.
2: So in this um, injunction that took place on Friday, it wasn't to um, weigh the merits of the case, but to allow the shelter to function until a final decision is made?
3: Yes. The shelter wants to continue serving the women that they serve and continue operating according to their beliefs. They also have found a need, particularly because of this issue that has come up, to affirmatively tell women that this is a women's shelter, because women have questions about whether this is going to continue to be the safe haven that it has. And so the Hope Center went to court asking the court to allow it to continue to operate in the best interest of the women that it serves, and uh, according to its own beliefs, while the case is going forward. Now, the Hope
2: Center is motivated, the downtown Hope Center, is motivated by their faith and deep concern for vulnerable women, and they have served in the community for quite some time. This singular incident raises the larger question of whether or not they and other uh, ministries, I suppose, like them, will be required to admit men, um, which would make it very uncomfortable, to say the least, for women who would typically come uh, to that facility for safe haven. Uh, the, the, uh, The Human Rights or Civil Rights Commission there have argued that this is a case of discrimination,
3: Yes, they have, but I will point out too that the Hope Center has during the day uh, a soup kitchen, they provide a a bakery, school for people, and uh, they provide shower and laundry services. And the particular individual who filed the complaint has been in and is welcome to continue coming in for those services where they um, are able to help both men and women. But because of need in the community, uh, the Hope Center opened the women's only shelter because they looked around and none of the other shelters in the the area had a place for just women to come and be assured that they would be safe and secure. And I have spoken to some of these women and they talk about the severe anxiety that they experience if they have to run into a man where they're going to sleep.
2: Now, this begs the larger question, which I'm sure will come up in court. Would they be required to um, uh, allow self-identified, um, well, males who self-identify as women Uh, Will they be uh, required to admit them in the future? Is that the, the heart of the issue that's likely to be argued when the merits of the case come before the court?
3: Absolutely. That is the issue going forward, is what is the Hope Center going to be required to do uh, in the future? And again, I talked to these women. One told me that the anxiety she experiences is so severe that she would actually go and sleep in the woods because that would be the only other secure place she could be. Um, And when you have those kinds of things at stake, uh, it's very important that the Hope Center continues to be able to operate the way it has.
2: Now, we're talking about a case in Anchorage, Alaska. How hopeful are you that this will ultimately fall in the, uh, from my perspective, in favor of the Hope Center, which would be the the right way?
3: We're very hopeful. Uh, I think the Constitution clearly provides uh, security and protection for the Hope Center to be able to operate according to their religious beliefs. And so uh, the constitutional claims are very strong in this case.
2: And the fact that they provide other services at other times of the day to which this individual and others like him or her Um, Are welcome. Will that play heavily into that decision or is it likely to be what we're seeing uh, far too often a a very rigid interpretation of what the um, Equal Rights Commission in Anchorage has outlined as what can and cannot be done?
3: Well, the Hope Center certainly serves everyone. Uh, They just have this particular service, this uh, women's shelter that's for women only, Um, and the Constitution protects that, and actually Anchorage law even protects that. There's actually an exemption in the law for um, male and female um, facilities within homeless centers, uh, and that makes good sense. Uh, It's just that Anchorage is refusing to apply that exemption to the Hope Center.
2: So what uh, happens next and what's the timing on the next series of decisions you're expecting?
3: These are preliminary motions to make sure that the Hope Center can continue to operate the way that it has. Uh, The judge gave no indication of when she would give her ruling, but we would be hopeful that that ruling will come soon.
2: Now, one final question comes to mind. If this male who self identifies as a woman is looking for a shelter, are there other facilities that would uh, provide shelter for him? Or or would there have to be something else created? What other options would he have had uh, in terms of looking for a place of shelter?
3: Every other shelter in the Cambridge area provides housing for both men and women and would welcome this individual in. Uh, but it's important that the Hope Center be able to continue yes. its only facility.
2: So there's not a uh, uh, a dearth of uh, options available to an individual who self-identifies self as the opposite sex?
3: Not at all. There are shelters in the area that will provide um, either men's and women's or secure individual housing um, within their facility.
2: Well, there was a hearing on Friday. I expect there'll be uh, some kind of response to that in the near future, and we'll continue to follow this case. Thank you so much for, uh, for joining us today.
3: Thank you for having me. Really
2: appreciate it. Again, uh, Kate Anderson is senior counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom. She's a member of the Center for Conscience uh, Initiatives uh, regarding a nonprofit in Anchorage, Alaska, uh, that provides shelter to women uh, who are homeless and have, been, have experienced abuse. And the effort on the part of one individual trying to come to the center who was probably not um, fit for any of the centers, but was inebriated and injured. They paid for that individual's transportation to a local hospital where he was cared for, uh, but that was insufficient. A complaint was later filed, and so this case has now come up. Uh, again, the uh, the challengers of this, uh, this uh, program is the Anchorage Equal Rights Commission. Uh, they began investigating the shelter for violating the ordinance which prohibits discrimination based on gender identity, which uh, it seems, given the details of this case, clearly is not Uh, ADF attorneys have explained the downtown Hope Center didn't deny the individual on that basis. And the city's ordinance specifically exempts homeless shelters uh, regardless. So we'll follow the case. It's another example of the work of Alliance Defending Freedom and providing uh, help to nonprofit organizations. And for that matter, individuals who uh, believe that their um, deeply held religious beliefs are being challenged or violated and it's a great resource to uh, to turn to. You're listening to the Georgine Rice show. We'll be back in a moment to talk with Justin Wells, How to Film Truth: The Story of Documentary Film as a Spiritual Journey.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. My next guest is the author of How To film truth, the story of documentary film as a spiritual journey. Well, filmmaker and author Justin Wells explores the intersection between life, faith, and storytelling in his new book. Uh, In the book, he explores the ways in which filmmakers have sought to tell the truth in powerful and personal ways. Um, it sometimes involves confession, testimony, celebration, lament, investigation. These engagements with healing truth promote emotional, psychological, and spiritual health in subjects, filmmakers, and audiences uh, are exploring. Well, my guest is a fascinating character. is the author and filmmaker. is a graduate of California State Long Beach Fuller Theological Seminary and Art Center College of Design. Actively working in the film industry as a camera technician and documentary filmmaker. Uh, He is devoted to the process of filming truth. He's been a member of the International Cinematographers Guild since 2005 for his work in commercials, television and movies. Uh, Wells' Master of uh, Fine Arts degree in filmmaking was awarded by the Art Center College of Design, where he focused on documentaries. His uh, first feature documentary, titled The Space of Our Time, explores the relationship between a healthy community and urban design. He joins us today to talk about his book, How to Film Truth. The Story of Documentary Film as a Spiritual Journey. Thank you so much for joining us today.
4: Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on.
2: Now, the subtitle of the book is very interesting, The Story of Documentary Film as a Spiritual Journey. Is that a journey that just the filmmaker takes, or do you see this as part of the journey that uh, audiences take along with you as well?
4: Well, it's interesting. You know, It refers to the fact that the book is a history of documentary film, But it also refers to this journey of exploring the truth that the filmmaker takes. But in um, sort of extension to that, often the subjects of the documentary film end up sort of better off for having gone through uh, the process of of having someone make a film about them,
1: Mm
4: -hmm. Uh, because someone's listening and someone's hearing their story, and they're kind of growing more self-aware, and there's a lot of healing that happens, actually for the subjects as well.
2: Now, how has your work in the film industry challenged or reinforced your faith?
4: Well, um, you know, it, I, um, I've been uh, sort of in two worlds my whole career. You know, I've been in the film business working um, on movies and in Hollywood and going to film festivals. And um, I've also been, um, you know, studying theology, studying philosophy and sort of in the, in the world of faith. And sort of the ne- the nexus for that um, is every year at the Sundance Film Festival, um, we have a little uh, forum called the Windrider Forum that is kind of um, a place for dialogue between people of faith and um, people in film or filmmakers. And I find that, um, funnily enough, the uh, the content of the films every year at the Sundance Film Festival, and this was kind of part of the reason behind me wanting to write this book, was that the content of these films um, is runs parallel to um, the tradition of faith. So um, a lot of the questions that you're tackling in these films is the same sort of questions that, that religious people are concerned with. And so I find that there's actually quite a bit of overlap in the world of faith and the world of film and art.
2: Now, how different is that from filmmakers who are not making documentaries that are seeking the truth, but are making films for the purpose of entertainment. Is that an entirely different enterprise altogether in terms of seeking truth, or do you find that there are overlaps there as well?
4: Well, you know, the the film, the um, narrative film world and the documentary film world, there's a little bit of overlap, but I think uh, there's a lot of really, really good work out there done um, in the, field of theology and film, religion and film that deals with narrative, that deals with mythology, that deals with um, sort of the um, what goes on when you're watching a Hollywood film or you're watching an independent film. There's a lot of good stuff uh, that goes on there. And I think that there's a lot of um, spiritual things that can happen um, in, in that world. But nobody has really written that much about nonfiction film. Mm-hmm. That's sort of what I wanted to tackle in this book. And what I what I think is going on in documentary film, um, the spiritual uh, part of documentary film isn't so much the just the viewing of it, sort of the you know the audience experience. I find that uh, it it happens to the filmmakers, and this was actually surprising to me because over and over and over again, I would hear the filmmakers describing the process of going through. Um, going out and looking for the truth and listening and exploring and, and discovering empathy. They were describing that in terms of a spiritual journey. And this is regardless of whether or not they come from a religious persuasion Mm -hmm. regarding it also as kind of a therapeutic and healing journey. And that's sort of what got me sort of, um, really interested in, Hey, how should we talk about this? How should we think about what's going on in these documentary films?
3: And not only that,
4: um, your average person can actually make a documentary film, unlike a Hollywood film that requires an army of resources. You know, I think that the technology is such that, that you know, I would love to take um, you know, the art of film off of the pedestal of, of Hollywood and give it back to the people and say, look, you can, that's why I put a bunch of exercises in the back of my mm-hmm. book on how to make a spiritual film is you could use your phone if you wanted to. You could, you know, you could, you could make a film and show it to your own community And I think that you could also tap into this sort of powerful act of truth telling.
2: Well, technology really has made it more accessible to the average uh, person who wants to communicate a message. Now, when you uh, speak about truth seeking uh, in your chosen um, field of work, is this um, seeking the truth of a particular event or in the life of a person that touches on ultimate truth? Or do you see this as seeking the truth regarding in that very narrow sense Um, the experience of an individual or community as the subject of a a documentary film?
4: Yeah, well, I think that there's kind of, um, what I found is that there's kind of these spiritual genres or these truth-seeking genres within the field of documentary film, and they, they really line up with traditional Cultural and religious forms of truth telling. So, in other words, there's always ways in uh, in in church, in culture, in ritual that we tell the truth to each other, or that we reveal the truth. You know, confession, which is kind of on a personal level, which has to do with self deception versus self um, uh, self knowledge. You know, testimony, which is on a more of a cult corporate level, you know, um, celebration, which is about remembering what's important for us as a culture, Um, lament, which is about not forgetting that which is tragic, that should never be repeated. Um, And then maybe the poetic, you know, kind of uh, looking into the sublime, you know, the, the wonder of existence. So these are all like, you know, truth telling rituals that have a very long and rich history. You know, confession was a literary genre, St. Augustine's Confessions. Confession is a personal act, you know. Mm -hmm. So what I'm saying is, you know, so many of these films, so many of these documentary films were lining up with those categories, you know, so I started to realize you can talk about confessional documentary films. You can talk about testimonial documentary films. You can talk about lament documentary films. And so what I did in the book was I sort of divided it up and said, okay, let's look. If you wanted to make a confessional film, Maybe you should know about what confession is and what confession does, why we have this deep need to reveal, why we need to be known by someone, you know, yeah. and in exploring that, you know, you can become a better filmmaker, but also if you're an audience member or just, you know, watching some of these films, if you know that that's what's up, you can sort of uh, participate in it as well.
2: I think I know the answer to this question, but I want to ask it for our audience's sake. To whom is your book written? Is it for the filmmaker, for the potential audience? Um, to whom would you recommend the book, How to, f- uh, to Film Truth?
4: Well, I think, you know, a big reason I wrote this was because I ended up in conversations with so many people when they find out that I work in the film business and they say, what's your favorite film, you know, what what's what's up with all these weird films out there or something. And I realized, you know what, we need a vocabulary to be able to really appreciate the the, the powerful things that's going on. Every year that I go to the Sundance Film Festival, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of at the nexus of, of the documentary encounter, which is like normally the filmmaker's there, normally the subjects are there, and then it's the first time that an audience ever gets to see the film. And every time, you know, when it's a really well-done film, say a confessional film or a testimonial film or a lament film, I watched this sort of encounter take place where the, the someone on screen is modeling true and honest confession, and they're sort of coming out of this with increased self-knowledge and some measure of healing, but it's also extending out to the audience. You know, So I think that you know, this would be great for filmmakers to know, know more about the religious traditions that they're tapping into, mm-hmm. you know? but also for the everyday person because we're in a, a golden age for documentary right now. Um, there's more and more than ever uh, platforms for documentary on Netflix and Hulu and uh, Amazon Prime streaming. Um, And um, also, you know, more and more people going out. I think there was three films that cracked the top 20 uh, all-time box office this year. I think it was the Mr. Rogers movie, uh, RBG, um, and then uh, Three Identical Strangers. You know, some of the most successful documentaries of all time. So like we should we should get on board. we should um, we should really embrace these really amazing films that are coming out.
2: We're going to continue our conversation again. We're talking with the author and filmmaker Justin Wells, his latest book, How to Film Truth: The Story of Documentary Film as a Spiritual Journey. We'll be back in a moment.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We are back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and I'm, I'm continuing my conversation with Justin Wells. He's an author and filmmaker, a graduate of California State Long Beach, Fuller Theological Seminary, and Art Center College of Design. He actively works in the film industry as a camera technician and documentary filmmaker. He's devoted to the process of filming truth. And his uh, latest book, How to Film Truth, a story of documentary film as a spiritual journey, and gives us a bit of that. Uh, history, because the genre has increased in its popularity uh, Popularity of, of recent, of late, um, it is good for us to have a better understanding of an appreciation of what this art form uh, really brings to the table. And you, pre- you present something of a history of a documentary film. What do you think the average person needs to know about this history that will help us better understand what's currently being presented?
4: Well, okay, documentary film, um, has a long history. It goes back to you know, the 1800s, and it's, and it's a very uh, sort of vibrant, uh, very thoughtful, uh, very investigative, um, it always has been, uh, enterprise, you know, because it takes a while to put together a film and do all the research and then get it out to audiences. It's, it's always been a bit of a, um, something that takes some time. And, see, I think that, that um, it, you know, Marshall McCullen, you know, the medium is the message. Um, social media, which is more about instant uh, instant judgments, instant uh, gratification, um, and kind of a fragmenting of information, um, documentary film coming to us from, from, from its history and still being in our culture is almost kind of an antidote to that sort of fragmented um, mentality that happens uh, with social media communication and the sort of... Um, you know vitriolic public rhetoric that we get involved with because of that medium of of social media um, documentary because you're going and sitting down in a theater for ninety minutes and you're you're sitting with these characters and you're kind of getting all the whole story with all of the little gaps filled in, not just bits and pieces of news like we do today um, typically you know in, uh, on Facebook or, or Twitter or something mm-hmm. or even the twenty four hour news cycle um it gives you it's kind of a gift where it just sort of lets you it's it's a much more empathetic uh it, it generates more empathy in the audience you know it generates more appreciation of the other um, and it it doesn't lend itself to snap judgments you know it, it's more it's more of kind of a merciful and grace filled medium you know so I think that if if we want to move away from the destructive tendencies of some of our forms of communication of mass communication today, embracing documentary film and making more documentary film is, is kind of an antidote to that uh, problem that we have.
2: Now, in one of your chapters, you use the word propaganda Uh, has documentary film been used uh, for that purpose. And is there a danger that because we approach a documentary film in a different way than we might an entertainment uh, film or a narrative film, as you, uh, as you put it earlier, um, that we can be misled?
4: Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I dealt with propaganda. I did a whole chapter kind of yes. on the, um, the World War II period, you know, because that was kind of a, the birth of, of, of nation states realizing the power of, of this medium, you know. Um, but I focus on um, some of the filmmakers uh, that were Hollywood filmmakers that joined the U.S. Army um, to make propaganda films uh, for the U.S., um, so there's Frank Capra, uh, John Huston, um, and several others. There's a great series on Netflix actually called Five Came Back, which is the the story of all these different American filmmakers. Um, but I focus on uh, uh, John Huston, who um, started out making um, propaganda and uh, sort of lying about the um, about the effect of these battles. I think he made a, a film called Report to the Aleutians where he lied in the film and said that this mission was a success when, in fact, some of them had been shot down because, the, you know, in their minds, the purpose was to to create, you know, generate morale. But as he started to uh, explore uh, his own conscience and continue to make uh, films for this, he sort of, he flipped and he decided that he wasn't going to make movies um, that sort of played into what he called the warrior myth, you know, that, that America is just has, is stronger than everyone else and going to win, but rather look at the the reality of war, the um, the cost of war, and the, this idea that there are no real winners in the end. Um, it, there's it's not a clear winner and loser because there's you know post traumatic stress syndrome. There's you know all of these costs of war that he wanted not to be ignored. So he ended up making a film called uh, Battle for San uh, San Pietro, the Battle of San Pietro. That uh, sort of highlighted this this notion of uh, the cost of war and ended up having it shut down uh, by the U.S. government. Um, it wasn't until I think the 1980s that this film finally came out and was released and sort of heralded as a mine, as a um, you know, some somebody ahead of his time, um, wanting to, um, to to not to propagandize, you know, but to but to Show the the real cost of war. So so it's interesting that these artists were, were they were supposed to be sort of in service to the powerful, but as the, the more true they were to their own art and the more true they were to their own conscience, the less they were able to. Um, there was a kind of a, a subversion of that uh, of that power structure, and so that's what I find is very interesting in the world of art is that it, as much as the powerful try to control the message, the artists are always subverting it. You see this sort of behind the Iron Curtain, you know, in, in the um, uh, when, when there was suppression of certain forms of art, you know, in the communist era. You know, you see it in Picasso, for example. You see it in a lot of these different artists. This phenomenon of seeking the truth will often even up in the power structures.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, the book uh, speaks to many specific works throughout the cinematic uh, history. Do you have a favorite?
4: <laughs> you know what? This, my favorite film right now, and I'm going to tell you a recent one because you can walk, go and wa- out and watch it right now, isn't in the book because I had already finished the book when I saw it. But there's a book right now, or sorry, a um, documentary film right now called Minding the Gap. Now, I had already written my chapter on confessional documentary when I saw Minding the Gap. But when I saw it, I said, oh, my gosh, this is the perfect example of the power of confession. You know, it's on Hulu, I think. I saw it at Sundance last year, and it's on Hulu now, and it's just a skateboarding video. I mean, it starts out, you think that this is going to be a skateboarding doc. But what it is, is really he's um, the filmmaker Bing Lu over the series of years filming his buddies is kind of exploring this um, thing that sort of lurks in the, in the dark behind the lives of all these young boys that are skateboarding around in Rockford, Illinois, and that is uh, domestic violence, you know. And he's kind of slowly prodding, slowly, you know, kind of asking the question of why it happened. Um, you know, nobody wants to talk about it. And that's one of the things about these, uh, you know, documentary film is that it can provide a sort of neutral place for us to have a discussion mm-hmm. about a subject that nobody wants to talk about, you know. And you always wonder, like, when, when these uh, systemic evils are out there, what will cause this, the, the cycle to stop and not continue on to the next generation? Because we know that oftentimes these things do continue on. And I got the sense after watching this movie that by just shining a light on the subject, there's a sense in which those things can't fester as much. They, can't, they sort of thrive in the dark, but they don't thrive as well in the light. And this film was such a powerful example of just how, um, how an empathetic, thoughtful, um, you know, time-consuming um, documentary – uh, with uh, subjects that you really identify with and subjects that are very honest with the camera, um, just how powerful that can be.
2: Mm. Well, now I have two films. I need to see five came back and Minding the Gap, so I'll have to <laughs> add that to my list. Now, you alluded just briefly a few moments ago to the exercises at the end of the book. Um, talk a little bit about that and what they're intended to accomplish.
4: Yeah, so this book is um, through the Real Spirituality Institute um, at Fuller Theological Seminary. And um, we wanted to put a section on the website for anyone that wanted to make, to, to try their hand at doing one of these uh, spiritual films. You know, so if you wanted to make a confessional film, say a five-minute confessional film, a testimonial film, a celebratory film, a lament film, you know, a poetic film. Um, and we would, uh, you know, if, if somebody wanted to take one of those exercises and try their hand, you know they can contact me through my website or through twitter or the real spirituality institute and uh, we'll 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 do some some kind of a way where we can show those online so people can see examples of what we're talking about and again it's part of my whole idea that I want to give the the uh, the art of film back to the people
2: well this book is absolutely fascinating and so is your aspiration to Uh, broaden interest in and participation in documentary filmmaking. Again, the book is titled How to Film Truth, the Story of Documentary Film as a Spiritual Journey. The book is published by Cascade Books. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today.
4: Oh, thank
1: you so much.
2: Really appreciate it. Again, Justin Wells is the author, How to Film Truth. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Oregon Governor Kate Brown was sworn in and delivered her second inaugural address today, known as the State of the Union Address, uh, this afternoon in Salem. In the speech, the governor unveiled some of her top priorities, including education, voter rights, campaign finance reform, health care, affordable and accessible housing, climate change, clean energy, among others. All of that wrapped up, of course. Into some pretty big tax increases. Governor Brown is a Democrat. She's serving her first full term. She took over, you might recall, from resigned Democratic Governor John Kitzhaber back in 2015 and won a special election in 2016 to finish his term. She was the first openly bisexual government uh, governor rather elected in the United States. Uh, Brown was Secretary of State prior to taking uh, over as governor. In the uh, November 2018 election, she defeated Republican challenger, challenger, rather, Newt Bueller with 50% of the vote to his 44%. Well, during the 2018 campaign, she ran on a platform of guiding Oregon through an unstable period while making progress in some of the biggest challenges facing the state. Let's hope PERS is among them. She highlighted legislation such as Cover All Kids, the minimum wage increase, and the $5 billion infrastructure package as successes during her time as uh, governor. And of course, the legislature will convene and it will all begin. We'll try to cover as much of that as possible. It's not as easy to get information timely as it once was, but we'll do our best to provide some highlights of some of the bigger issues uh, confronting the Oregon legislature, which uh, is held in both the House, Senate and uh, Governor's chair by Democrats. Taking a look at this week in programming on Tuesday, we're going to talk with the CEO of First Image about Sanctity of Human Life Week, which is coming up. Larry Gadbaugh will join me. He's the CEO of Uh, First image, which is the name of the pregnancy resource centers in the Portland metro area. And on Wednesday, I'm looking forward to talking with the executive director of Oregon Right to Life. We'll talk about Sanctity of Human Life, the March for Life, the Oregon legislative session, which is beginning. And uh, Oregon's legislative pro-life agenda. The March for Life is uh, coming up this next weekend. And as I'll um, go into some detail about in just a few moments, I will be in Guatemala during that time. So we wanted to try to have some conversation this week in anticipation of the anniversary of the infamous Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton decisions. Uh, and uh, the events that surround this anniversary. On uh, Thursday, our World Concern Radiothon will take place. We have uh, this event every year, giving listeners an opportunity to consider um, how some among us on this planet hunger and thirst and what role we might play in relieving some of their suffering. So my friends will join me in studio on Thursday for that. And then on Friday, we will broadcast live from Mission Connection. And we uh, spend most of our time talking with some of the speakers there. There are over 100 workshops. There are um, uh, all kinds of booths there. It's the keynote speakers, which I'll get into uh during this week, uh, will also be presented. And I've had the uh, the honor of being asked to emcee that event for the weekend. So not only will we be broadcasting on uh, Friday from uh, Rolling Hills Church, where Mission Connection is held this year, but we'll also have an opportunity to serve from the stage as emcee, along with Bill McLeod who is the founder and director of Mission Connection. So looking forward to a full weekend. The theme this year is worth it. And that's a pretty big question that many ask when they read the stories of those who suffer for their faith, whether that means their opportunity to work and support their family is, um, is limited or removed from them altogether. If they're imprisoned, if their lives are taken from them, is it worth it? And because we suffer so little here in the United States, in the West in general, Uh, we might find it uh, absolutely impossible to imagine that kind of challenge and surviving it favorably. Well, we're going to take a look during Mission Connection to answering that question from people who uh, are on the ground, who are in the middle of that kind of suffering, whose testimonies I think you will find inspiring. And of course, the workshops, the speakers speakers from the platform in the plenary sessions, it's all going to help us uh, answer that question worth it. And of course, the The full question is, is it worth it to follow Jesus when such tremendous suffering can result? And that might mean personal suffering or the suffering of those to whom you share the gospel. They receive the gospel and trouble follow. So uh, that will be the theme this year. And we're looking forward to highlighting the persecuted church and the challenge for those of us who have yet to be truly persecuted to support them in tangible and spiritual ways. So. Looking forward to this weekend, beginning on Friday, we'll be broadcasting there live. And again, it's at Rolling Hills. You can go to missionconnection.com for more information. You must register ahead of time. It's free of charge. That's always been the case. Uh, It is the, the premier mission conference here in the Pacific Northwest. And you are cordially invited to take part. It's an opportunity to really hear from the Holy Spirit. Lord, send me. What would you have me do? And sometimes send me means writing a check. Sometimes it means hopping on a plane. But uh, clarifying what role you are called to play in the Great Commission is one of the great values of mission connection. In addition to being encouraged by the testimonies of those who are on the front line, Uh, to get a better understanding of who God is and how he works in in difficult and challenging places and how you might better serve him uh, wherever you are called. So that's Mission Connection this Friday and Saturday. Worth it. Once again, tomorrow on the program, we are going to talk with Larry Gadbaugh. He is the CEO of First Image. Uh, Sanctity of Human Life Week is approaching. And as I mentioned, I'm going to be traveling with Food for the Poor to Guatemala. It's a relatively short trip. I'll leave on Tuesday. I'll be back on Friday. You can kind of do the math. One travel day coming, one travel day going, two uh, days in country. But it's uh, going to be an opportunity to meet with some of the folks who serve uh, with Food for the Poor on the ground in Guatemala to meet some of the children and families they serve and really have a clearer picture and understanding of the work they do and the needs of the people. And, of course, we have partnered with Food for the Poor over many years Uh, to help them continue their effective work around the globe. So I'm going to be gone during that season. We'll have some guest hosts, I should say during that week, but we'll have some guest hosts to fill in in my absence. And then I look forward to returning with some uh, fascinating stories about how God is working in this country of Guatemala. Uh, some in our hemisphere some many, many miles away. Want to thank James Blend for producing and Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night.
1: Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show Podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at KPDQ.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook.